class. Good morning, church. Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Going to read a few verses there as we continue on this uh, We Are Harvest uh, series. And um, I want to talk about the word uh, disciple here today. And it's not a word that we uh, use to describe ourselves, uh, at least not commonly. We don't describe ourselves as being a disciple so much as we would use the words uh, we're believers or uh, I'm a Christian, or at times we might say that we're Christ followers, I'm a Christ follower, but we tend to not use the word uh, disciple. And I, I wonder why that is, and, and maybe um, uh, making some excuses for us here, maybe it's because it's too close of an association with the 12, the 12 disciples, and, uh, and, and yet that's not really a great uh, excuse because throughout the New Testament we see other believers aside from the 12 being called uh, disciples. Uh, maybe uh, the word disciples too much of, you know, like an insider word. It's a, it's a word we might use here and understand, but we don't use it because we know people outside the church wouldn't necessarily understand what the word disciple means. But I wonder if the real reason that we don't use disciple in describing each other, or describing ourselves, is that it's a, it's a weighty word. That it's a word that's packed with implications, and we instinctively know as soon as we say disciple, that that's a calling to something higher than simply believing, believer, or simply identifying with Christ, Christian. It's, it just has implications. And so in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus uh, commissioned us as a church, he commissioned us as individual uh, believers to make disciples. This is the passage we're going to read in just a moment. Our commission is to actually make disciples. We don't make cars. We don't bake bread. We're not churning out graduates. The church is about making disciples. Uh, we're not running a community center. We're not a social service agency. We are not a political lobby group. We make disciples. And we don't just make converts. We're not just interested in getting people saved, so to speak, and slapping the name Christian on them. We don't just make converts. We make disciples. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to actually be in the business, so to speak, of making disciples, then we need to know what we're making, and we need to know how to make them. Any bakery knows that you got to pick the thing you're actually baking and you got to have a recipe in order to bake that. And so for us, as a first step towards understanding what we're making and how to make them, here's a definition. This is what we use around Harvest to describe a disciple. A disciple is someone who worships, walks with, works, and witnesses for Christ. So that's what we're going to work with here this morning. Let me read the passage. We're in Matthew 28. We're going to start at verse 16 and go right to the end of the book here, just a few verses. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, because it isn't just about converts, as I just said a moment ago, because it's not just about converts, here's how we say it at Harvest. This is on the screen and in your notes. We make more and better disciples of Jesus who worship, walk, work, and witness for Christ. We make more and better disciples of Jesus. Now, before we get into those four W's, that's how we're going to uh, work through this uh, this morning. Let's first of all look at the commission itself. I want to kind of break that down for us. And then I want to make sure that we really do know what the word disciple means. So those two things first, we're not quite into the outline yet if you're following along in your notes. Let's look at the commission, Matthew 28, and just a few uh, verses. Actually, what we're going to do here, instead of looking at the whole passage, let me put this back up on the screen for you, but I've underlined some key words that we want to look at. First word is go, 
then the little phrase, make disciples, then the words baptizing and teaching. Now we look at that and we call it a commission and we know there's a command in there. And the temptation is to see the very first word in that commission and see that as the command. But go is not the command. Go is not the imperative of the great commission. In fact, we look at three key words there, go, baptizing, and teaching. And all three of those are really actions that flow out of the command or the imperative. And if we were really to narrow it down even further, we would see that it's really baptizing and teaching that are the action that we do. And go is really an assumption that Jesus makes of his followers. Go is, is, is an assumption that Jesus says, in fact, if we, were, you know, if we were to write this in a different way, Jesus would say, as you are going, in the process of going out, make disciples. Because there's a basic assumption that we know that we're on mission. There's a, there's a basic assumption that Jesus is making of his, of his disciples here, that they're not simply going to be so thankful that they're saved, that they're just going to sit and enjoy that and be comfortable with that. Jesus assumes that we know that we're supposed to be reaching out to others with the gospel. And so if go is not the imperative, and, and baptizing and teaching are the actions that flow out of the imperative, all we're left then with is make disciples. And that, in fact, is the imperative. That's the command. And the way that we make disciples is by baptizing and teaching as we go. So that's an understanding of the Great Commission. Feel like you got that? Everybody good with that? Next, let's define the word. Let's make sure we really understand what a disciple is. Well, again, we're dealing with the New Testament being written in Greek. The Greek word is written there for you, mathetes. And to be a follower, it means this. And this is, I'm going to just give you three little passages that I read here. Two, the first two are out of lexicons that explain words to us. Um, but here we go. Um, Mathetes is to be a follower or a disciple of someone in the, in the sense of adhering to the teachings or instructions of a leader and in promoting the cause of such a leader. And so key words there are, you're a follower of a certain person, you adhere to that person's teaching, and beyond adhering to it, you promote that teaching to others. That's what a disciple means. Okay, you you follow a leader, you adhere to the teachings, you promote the teachings to others. Uh, Gerhard Kittel in his lexicon says, the word disciple always implies the existence of personal attachment, which shapes the whole life of the one described as disciple, and which in its particularity leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. The formative power, the shaping power, the teaching power comes from Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit given to us to change us, to conform us into the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, what is so true of, of us as Christians is we're not simply following a set of tenets of the faith, but instead we're following the one who embodies the tenets of the faith. And that's the difference with a disciple Bill Hull, who's written uh, several books on this issue of discipleship, said this, Jesus characterized disciples as people of commitment and obedience. They also willingly suffered and shared in the work. The primary use of disciple in the Gospels requires us to think of a disciple as a committed follower of Jesus Christ. It means more than just a believer but a person who demonstrates belief by action. And so with all of that in mind, the definitions, the lexical definitions, this, this explanation by Hall, we get a clear picture of what a disciple actually is. And for us, the way we describe that based on these definitions is, for us, a disciple is someone who worships, walks with, works, and witnesses for Christ. And so now we'll just work through each of those four, break that down, at Harvest, we make more and better disciples of Jesus 
who first of all worship Christ. Now, the baptizing that Jesus mentions in the Great Commission, we read that. Uh, we're going to, as we're going, we're going to make disciples. The way we're going to do that is baptizing and teaching them. The baptizing that Jesus mentions in Matthew 28 assumes, it assumes conversion. It assumes that moment when a person moves from death to life. So every person, I mean, if you're genuinely saved, if you're really a Christian, then there was a moment in time that you can look back on and say, that was the moment that I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Before that, I was not a follower of Jesus Christ. Before that, I was still in my sins. After that, I was forgiven of my sins. That's the moment of conversion, when I move from death to life. And we see that pictured for us repeatedly in the New Testament. In the days following the day of Pentecost, in fact, Acts chapter 2, we're going to spend a little bit of time in these verses. We read in verse 47 of Acts 2 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That means there were a certain number of people who were saved on Monday, and by Tuesday there were more people. On Monday, they were not saved. On Tuesday, they were. They came to faith in Christ. They had their sins forgiven. They pledged their lives to follow Jesus Christ. There were even more on Wednesday. Every day, God was adding new converts to the church in Jerusalem. On Tuesday, I was lost. On Wednesday, I'm found. On Wednesday, I was blind. On Thursday, I could see. They were converted in a moment, convinced of what the gospel was teaching them. And every Christian has to have that moment, that, that point in time where you can look back and say, before that time, I was not saved. And when we have that, when we have that conversion moment, that's the first step towards being a worshiper of Christ, worshiping Christ. Worship Christ of necessity starts with conversion, and it includes baptism, and then it's expressed in a lifetime of worship. Not, and we're not just talking about what we just did here a few moments ago. This is, like, this is the worship service, I get. That's what we call it, and we just had worship songs, and we spent this time in worship, and now we're this time in the Word. But listen, worship is much more than just this corporate, what we call the corporate expression of worship. The church gathered together to express our worship to God. But worship for a Christian is really 24-7. It's the entirety of one's life given to worship. It's those moments during the week when you just notice what God is doing and you just spontaneously, no matter what, you know, what's happening around you or who you're with, is that, God, I'm so grateful. I worship you. You're so good to me. That's worship. And pretty much so is everything else in our life that acknowledges who God is. And so worship Christ starts with conversion, includes baptism, expresses itself in a lifetime of worship. And that's what we see uh, in, in Acts chapter 2 described for us. In verse 43, it says that all fell upon everyone. All fell upon every soul in the church of Jerusalem. Why? There was the preaching of the word. There was there was, there was singing, there were people who were sharing what they had and selling off what they had. We'll read that in a few moments. I mean, people just pouring out their lives and telling other people about Jesus. They were going from house to house and just forming these deep eternal relationships. And all of that was worship because it brought about this sense of awe before God. And so the questions that I'm left with as I, as I think about this and press each one of us to ask the question, am I a disciple who worships Christ? First of all, are you saved? If you're not yet saved, you haven't had that conversion moment. Now's the moment to confess your sin and come to faith in Christ. Secondly, are you baptized? And then thirdly, are you worshiping him? Let me break each of those down. If you're not saved, come to Jesus. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for you and was raised again on the third day in power. Believe that. Confess your sin and come to him by faith alone. That's all you need to bring. Jesus, I believe. 
and he'll save you. If you're not saved, get saved. If you're saved, but you're not baptized, get baptized. The only qualification, I want you to think like, what's the qualification? What do I need to do to get baptized? We just talked about it. Get saved. The qualification for baptism is salvation and and that's it. The only qualification for a new believer to get in the tank and get wet is that they get saved and that's it. Not that your family's there. Well, I just want my family to be there. Not a biblical qualification for baptism. Well, I just want to have a better understanding of my faith. I think I should, you know, just spend some time just listening to sermons and understand it and really get, you know, more deeply grounded. Not in the Bible. Not a qualification for baptism. Wonderful thing to do. But not a qualification for baptism. In fact, it's not a qualification that you take a class on baptism. Mind you, we do have a class. But it's not a qualification. If you understand it, you don't need to take our orientation. You can come get baptized. It's not, it's not that you, you know, I just don't feel like this is the right time. Are you saved? It's the right time. Let me help you with that. I don't feel like it's the right time. Are you saved? It's the right time. Because that's the pattern we see in the scripture. You simply get saved and we get baptized. I think about uh, Philip and he had this um, opportunity to speak to an Ethiopian, a high government official that was heading back to his own country from Jerusalem. And, and he gets into his chariot with him and the guy was, the Ethiopian was reading the Bible and Philip got up there and started to explain the Bible to him, explain the things that he was reading. And, and in the course of it, you know, he, he comes to faith in Jesus. He, he believes what Philip is telling him. Then he sees a body of water. He stops the chariot. He says, what? This is such a great question. What prevents me from being baptized? My family's not here. I don't feel like it's the right time. I need to be more grounded in my theology. Maybe you should just teach me a few more things, Philip. No, none of those things. It's the Ethiopian himself says, there's nothing preventing me from being baptized, is there? Philip goes, no. And they go down in the water, he baptizes them. That's the pattern that we should see in our own lives. Get saved. Get baptized as soon as possible after becoming a Christian. And then, if you're not making it a priority to worship, to get together with the church each week, to worship Him in this way, then you need to change that. Now, I want to say, like, the last two years the worship of the church has been disrupted. And the, the pandemic disrupted a lot of things in our lives. The, the, but it's not, a, it's not a bad thing. Would you agree with me? It's not a bad thing to be disrupted by God. It's not a bad thing to be disrupted by God. In fact, when we're disrupted by God, we really ought to be looking behind the disruption to see the thing that God is trying to do in our lives as a result of the disruption. I mean, a lot of people who have been fighting the disruption itself, resisting the disruption, rather than looking to see the thing that God is teaching them through this time. We've, we've sought to see God at work through this season. God, what are you trying to do in our church? What are you trying to teach us as a church? What are you trying to teach us as believers? One of the disruptions, of course, is that our, our congregation now is not only here in person, but our congregation is also on the live stream. It's also on demand. And so what I want to say about that, because it all speaks to our worship. It speaks to our gathering together to worship Christ. The reality is, if you're watching this on demand this week, that's good. We acknowledge that it's good. We're glad that you're watching it on demand. If right now you're watching on the live stream, I would just say that that's better. You're joining us in real time. You're hearing this live, and you're interacting at least in some small way with those who are in the chat but you're experiencing it in the moment. And so that too is awesome. It's good to watch on demand. It's better to watch the live stream, but it's best to be here in the room. It's best to be here in the room, to be gathered, to be gathered together with God's people. And that word together, is, is, it means something. And we're gonna see it here in the text in just a moment. 
We're grateful for the opportunity to come into all these homes and to, to reach all these people outside of this room. But the church needs to be the church together. We need to see each other's faces. We need to experience each other's lives. We need to hear each other's voices. We need the personal touch. And so this is what we need. This is, we need to be the church. We need to be gathered for worship. And a lot has been made through the last two years about Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And not everybody's kind of looked at this verse in, 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 a, in a good way, in the right way. They've tried to make it more than what it is. But let me just read it. Just understand the plain meaning of what we're seeing here. Ultimately, that's the goal of interpreting the Scriptures, the plain meaning. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us, let us think about how we can make each other better disciples. How can I make you a better disciple? How can you make me a better disciple? Remember, we exist to to make more and better disciples. And so at least in part, the gathering together here is about making you a better disciple and making me a better disciple. Let's think about that. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Notice, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That's, that's the thing with what we've gone through in the last two years, that maybe we've just become a little lethargic about our faith. Maybe we've let some, some disciplines slide. Maybe we need to reevaluate all of that and consider again how we can best gather, how we can best contribute to stirring one another up, to making better disciples of each other. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's coming. That's coming sooner now than when the preacher of Hebrews preached this message. And so we need this. We need to be together. We're going to talk a lot more about worship in the pillar message next week, but bottom line here is that... Uh, a disciple of Jesus worships Christ. Amen? All right, here's the second one. We make more and better disciples of Jesus who also walk with Christ. And the first church, again, the first church in Jerusalem modeled this for us. We've already spent a little bit of time in Acts 2. We're going to go back there right now. Acts 2, 44. And all who believed were, what's the word? Together. There's that word. We just read that in Hebrews 10. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. So walking with Christ is about not only your personal walk with Christ, so your devotional life, your spiritual disciplines, are you in the word personally? Do you pray personally? Like, do you have some time that you're spending with the Lord on a regular basis each week? Do you have that? That's part of walking with Christ, but also it's about who you're walking with. You're walking with other believers, other disciples. It's to be done together. So you have to notice the, the mutuality, the, the interdependence of the Christian life and church life. And again, Acts gives us a wonderful picture into that. Notice verses 45, 47. They were selling their possessions, I referred to this already, and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They're just looking around like people have needs. I can sell this thing. I can cash that out and I can give you the money so that you can afford food or you can afford your rent or you can pay your utility bill. We're looking for needs. Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day, notice, attending the temple together. There's that word again. Breaking bread in their home. So they're getting together in large group. They're getting together in small group. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. I read that last long and I, line and I think again of, of uh, John 13, 34 and 35. And by, you know, how, how, how's the world going to know? Jesus said that if you love one another, the world's going to know that you're Christians. That's what I see pictured right here in Acts 2. They had favor of all the people, even people outside the church, because they were loving each other so well that unbelievers in Jerusalem were taking notice of that. And we're showing them favor. And so what we do, we do together. 
The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation if we're to be faithful to God. I mean, the pandemic pushed us into isolation. For some people, they were fine with that. For some people, it didn't actually change their life too much. The sanguine people, the the, the, the outgoing people, though, they're, they're clamoring for the end of restrictions. They're clamoring for the time when we can, in an unrestricted way, be back together. But many introverts, many who are more private anyway, who are, who are prone to isolation, are going to struggle on this point to get back. Because the Christian life is lived in community the key word is we do it together. And so you're going to have to fight. This is not, this not everybody's problem, but it's some, some are going to struggle on this point. And you have to struggle against the temptation to remain in isolation because the Christian life simply isn't lived that way. In fact, the church is described uh, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere as the body of Christ, the singular body of Christ. There's just one. Each one of us is, as Christians forming a unique part of the body with Christ as the head of the body. And Paul, in fact, in that same chapter, he speaks to the very ludicrous idea that someone who's part of the body could stand outside of the body and say, I'm a Christian. You can't sever yourself from the body and still claim Christ. I mean, individual spirituality may be in vogue in Western culture. You know, this is the uh, I love Jesus crowd, but I'm not so fond of the church. But it's one body, and he's the head of it. You can't say you love the head and you hate the rest. It's one body. To say you hate the, the rest is to say that you actually hate Christ. It's his body. There's no room scripturally for individual spirituality. It may be in vogue in Western culture, but it's wholly incompatible with biblical Christianity. You have to be part of the church. Now, as we mind down on what this together thing really means, for us, a huge part of this is our small group ministry. And we would say this, prepositions are so important, but we're a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. Church of small groups, not a church with small groups. There's a huge difference between those two things. And because small groups are really the primary way that we relate to one another, it's not the Sunday services. Super difficult to build relationships on Sunday, in Sunday services. You know, because basically you just come here, you all sit in rows looking at me, not each other, and the best you do is you, you can see the back of the head of the person in front of you, and that's it. We're not going to build a relationship that way. You get greeted at the door, I get that, and our team's do an amazing job of making you feel welcome. You're not building relationships that way either. This is a, a critical part of who we are for the corporate worship and singing and just being in the large group. It's awesome, it's amazing, I get it, but it's only a small part of things. And if all you ever do is come here, it's not nearly enough to build those relationships. In fact, the primary way that we relate to one another is not the Sunday services, but in our small groups. Each one of those plays a very different but equally critical role. So that if you're only coming on Sundays and not engaged on a serving team or you're not in a small group, there's going to be little wonder that you won't have a good experience of connection here and that you may even feel like the church is, in, uh, is unfriendly. But understand that our expectation is not that this is the place where you're going to build deep relationships. Now, if that's true for those of you who are in the room, by the way, we're also dealing with distancing. Don't get too close to people. And we're still dealing with masks. I can only see half your face. I don't even know if I'm going to like you. I need to see the bottom half. That is multiplied many, many times over if you're watching on demand or you're watching by live stream. We understand that, right? It's just going to be harder. So I'm just setting our expectations where they need to be. And so, so, the, so the, the message is get in a group. In our small groups, here's what I would just say about them. Our small groups helped during the pandemic because we had a well-developed 
um, small group ministry going into the pandemic that served us so well, being in the pandemic and in, in, in isolation and churches that didn't have small group ministries really struggled to figure out how to contact everybody in their church. Whereas we had this ne network already established of coaches and, and leaders and hosts uh, for small group ministries, and, and that really helped us. And those small groups met um, to a lesser or greater degree, depending on the group, during all, all, all during the pandemic, sometimes in person and sometimes um, uh, on Zoom. Um, but because they were already in relationship when the lockdowns came, they had this sense of cohesion. I had a great conversation with Pastor Dwayne about this this week, and he even noted that it didn't matter if the group was meeting in person or if they had um, found some way to meet um, in person or online, as long as they agreed, because what they were doing is they were keeping their focus on Christ and on each other rather than on their own crisis. And everybody was going through the crisis. But it was great to know that you were with some other people that were helping you through it and that were right where you were as well. And that getting your eyes off of yourself is so critical to small group ministry. And in fact, over the last two years, we've seen this uptick. Even during the pandemic, we've seen this uptick in people wanting to be in small groups to get that connection. But we've struggled to get people into small groups because we've lacked leaders to lead those, those groups. And I know a lot of people have been overwhelmed over the last two weeks, or uh, two years, but we've been, um, we've been really overwhelmed in the midst of all of this. It's, it's really, there's an irony to it because we were told to do less, to stay home, to spend less. And we just scaled back and simplified our lives, and yet somehow in the simplifying of our lives, we all felt overwhelmed. Isn't that true? We just felt overwhelmed. Everybody felt that, but now we're coming out of it. Next weeks, we're going to be clear of many of the restrictions. I believe that. That is the trajectory of where we're heading. And some of us need to get over the excuses that we've made for not leading, not joining, not engaging, not doing the things that God has gifted us to do. We need to set aside the excuses, and we need to step back up and get back to the business of being the church. And some small groups, of course, over this period of time also stopped meeting, and, and really that was to their own loss, and I'm sure many of them would testify to that as well. Now, having said all of that, I, I, I want to just make it clear. Small groups are not easy. It's, it's one of the hardest things you'll be asked to do here. It takes time. It requires sacrifice. If your group meets on Thursday night and you just get home from work, the last thing you want to do is head back out and go to your small group. It can be a real stressor to do these things. The engagement is difficult in one another's lives. And Paul wrote in, in Ephesians 4, he's, he's given incredible instructions about what it means to be part of the church. We looked briefly at Ephesians 4 last week, but look at these first three verses. He says this, I urge you to walk, again, that's the metaphor we're using here, walk with Christ. It's a metaphor for how we live our Christian life. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Not a calling to vocational ministry. This is not a pastoral calling. He's talking to regular church members. This is the calling to which you've been called is your salvation. You want to live a life that consist, that's consistent with your salvation. This is how you're going to do it. Now notice how hard it is based on the things that Paul's telling us to be and do. He says, with all humility, which means that sometimes pride's going to rear its ugly head in our lives in the midst of our relationships with gentleness, because sometimes we're going to be tempted to be harsh with one another in our small groups, with patience, because sometimes we're just going to lose it or be tempted to lose it. This is the phrase we looked at in last week's message, bearing with one another in love. Bearing is, is put up with. You know, how many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you in your small groups just have to put up with someone in your small group? Don't raise your hands. Margarita, I can see you raising your hand. Don't, put, don't raise your hand. Yeah, well, those people in the small group probably had to put up with you once or twice too, right? That's why Paul puts this in here. Eager to maintain, oh, here's something that took a massive hit during the pandemic among Christians. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity and peace are not two words I would use to describe how Christians have managed the pandemic. There should be some repentance around that. But all of that to say, as all of that relates to a small group, none of it is easy. 
But the pursuit of what we call uh, here uncommon community is what is what makes this so worthwhile. It's uncommon community because it's hard to do and it's hard to find. If it were easy to do and easy to find, it wouldn't be uncommon community. It would be common community. But it's not. It's a challenge to live this out. And again, Ephesians 4 beautifully describes this for us as we seek to walk with Christ as he intends. All right, here's a third. A disciple will work for Christ. I just briefly uh, referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 12, but uh, one verse there that speaks, um, it speaks to the body of Christ, of course, but it also speaks to spiritual gifts. And Paul writes this in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, to each disciple Christian, to each is given the manifestation or a gift or gifts of the Spirit for the common good. He uses the word manifestation there, and, and when you have a talent or ability that the Holy Spirit then fills you and empowers you, it's literally as if the Holy Spirit is showing up in what you're doing, showing up in your teaching, showing up in your service, showing up in your hospitality, and taking that talent or, or ability and, and just giving jet fuel to it to accelerate the impact of what might be a very natural talent or ability for you. It's the manifestation of the Spirit, the Spirit showing up in you for, again, the common good of the entire body. And so we're each given, every believer is given, that's what Paul says, every single Christian is given, every disciple is given abilities and talents that are then matched with some passion we have in our heart to the benefit of others. And so, for example, someone may have the gift of leadership or the gift of, of mentoring. And when that gets added to a passion to work with teenagers, they can become a leader in Jordan's ministry and harvest youth. Maybe someone with a compassion or a mercy gift heard the announcement at the beginning of the service about uh, our new Harvest Helps team, wants to join on that team to help and engaging with that team and helping those who are hurting. Maybe someone with the gift of hospitality will join the cafe team or the welcome teams and, 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 and uh, to the benefit of all who come and attend here, feeling welcomed. And so all of these gifts and, and many, many others are used for the benefit of youth and their families and the hurting and anyone who attends the church. This is how God has set up the church. It's, it's everyone working for Christ to the benefit of all. No exclusions. Everyone working for Christ to the benefit of all. In the latter part of Ephesians 4, Paul explains church structure, leadership structure, philosophy, or approach to ministry. Listen to what he says. This is Ephesians 4. It speaks right into this issue of work for Christ. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and teachers... Christ gave leaders of various kinds to the church. Notice their job to equip the saints. You're the saints. Christians, believers, disciples, saints. Take your pick. To equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. So the leaders are given, recruit, equip, encourage, recruit, equip, encourage. But the members are doing the work of the ministry. They're on the teams. You're on the teams. And the purpose of that is for building up the body of Christ. We're trying to make better disciples. We're trying to build up the body and encourage everyone. And by doing so, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Again, not just making more disciples, but making better disciples in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. And so that's the goal. It's, it's to grow the body. It's to encourage the body. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, I love this, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And when I see that phrase, working properly, I imagine that's everybody using their gift to contribute to the building up of the church, building up the body, and I imagine that if everyone was fully engaged 
in allowing the manifestation of the Spirit in their lives in this way, we would have a lot less time for foolish social media controversies. We'd have a lot less time for conflicts and contention between believers over temporal things. Because we'd be so focused on the gospel growing in each one of our lives. We'd be doing the thing that Christ has told us to do in terms of building up the church. And so like for me, the math seems so simple. The more time and energy you put into your work for Christ, the less time you'll have for nonsense. I really wanted an amen at the end of that, so I'm going to say it again, give you another shot. The more time and energy you put into your work for Christ, the less time you'll have for nonsense. Exactly how I pictured it going. Thanks for indulging me. So a disciple works for Christ. So two questions for you. Question one, what is or are your spiritual gifts? Do you know? I mean, very often they just match up with things that you're good at. Things that you do at work that you're good at. Things that you get paid for things that you do at home that you're good at. And then you just link that up with a passion. So what are your spiritual gifts? And secondly, what is your passion? Is it, I just have a passion for serving uh, children or youth, or I have a passion to work more with adults. Don't, please don't put me with the children. Some people are like, I would prefer not to work with people at all. Is there a way I could build up the church that did not involve people? Yes, there are some. There are administrative roles. There's a lot of carpet and floors in this building that need to be cleaned. Thomas would love for you to come and join the facility team. You could spend all of Thursday all by yourself vacuuming carpets and cleaning floors. Some people are going, I love Jesus and the church so much, I could do that. It's fine. God's wired up to us, us up differently. Some people are so administratively strong and just want to sit at a desk and add a computer and, and crunch numbers. They're good with finances or, or some other a specific area of administration. Counseling, teaching, music. Some people like pretty lights, and so they join the production team because the boards all have so many pretty lights on them. And they're very sophisticated, and I don't understand any of them. Maybe that's you. You like technical stuff. You like production. You want to sit behind a camera or in front of a control panel. Maybe you have a mercy gift or compassion. Maybe you have the gift of leadership or, again, of finances, whatever it is. If you're not engaged in serving, then there's a gap of some significance in your claim to be a disciple. If you're not engaged in working for Christ, then there's a gap of some significance in your claim to be a disciple. All right, we've done three. One more. We make more and better disciples of Jesus who witness for Christ. It's always going to come back to what we said off the top about conversion. The starting point for all of us is conversion. It's coming to faith in Christ. So now that I know Christ, like I want to tell other people about him. Well, I want to tell other people that I've had my sins forgiven. I want to tell other people what it's like to live the abundant life. I want to tell other people what it's like to be free in Christ. I want to tell other people what it's like to have the hope of eternity when the whole world around me is on a straight on, like fast lane path to hell. I want to tell them what it's like to have the hope that I'm going to be with Jesus forever. I want to introduce others to him. This is the make more of make more and better disciples. This is what Jesus gave us as our mission that we saw in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We read off the top, but also in Acts 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have to be his, his witnesses to the end of the earth, which includes, by the way, Barry, Simcoe County and Ontario and this great country that we get to be a part of. It includes every other country of the world. It includes, by the way, your neighborhood. It includes your workplace. 
It includes your extended family. We're to be his witnesses. Witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection power that saved us. Witnesses to the salvation that is ours if we confess our need of a Savior. I came to Christ, my conversion moment. I was raised in a semi-religious home. I went to Sunday school largely on my own. I never heard the gospel in that church until we moved down here, and I went to the Salvation Army Church, St. Thomas, Ontario, and I heard the gospel clearly explained for the first time. I was in the lower hall of that building, and it was a youth night, and I remember giving my life to Jesus Christ. I spent the first six years of my walk with Christ in the Salvation Army, was discipled there in the basic tenets of the Christian life. Salvation Army people, you know, wear uniforms. It's an army after all, and on the uniforms, and I used to wear the uniform as well, uh, we had um, on our lapels uh, two S's, S and S, standing for Salvation, Salvation Army. There was more of an informal view of why those two S's were there, I don't know if it was some preacher at some time that came up with the idea, but very often they would say the two S's stand for saved to serve. Then there were other preachers who said, you know, it's saved to save, that we're here to actually share the gospel with people, not just saved to serve, but saved to save. One thing's absolutely certain about the two S's is it didn't mean saved to soak. It didn't mean saved to sit. That whether you believed it was saved to serve or saved to save, Either way, it makes the point. As saved ones, we exist to save others and not to rest in our salvation. And when I was thinking about this, I I remembered this quote by William Temple, who said this, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. I mean, our mission is to make people who are not disciples into disciples. Every other calling in your life, and we have multiple callings in our life. The calling to be a son or daughter, the calling to be a spouse, the calling to be a parent, the high calling that it is to be in in deep friendship with people, the calling to be a good employer or a good employee, The calling to be a a responsible citizen of the country in which you're born or the country that you emigrate to. All of those callings are beautiful callings, are part of what it means to be a Christian. But all of them play into the one most important calling, disciple and disciple maker. Every one of those callings and purposes is secondary to the calling to make disciples. And in fact, the temple quote is consistent with one of the leadership resources that has shaped how we see our church. Don Cousins uh, wrote this material leadership um, three decades ago, but it still shapes how we look at our church. Ministry ought to be elder protected. This is what we aspire and what we're constantly working on. Ministry ought to be elder-protected, staff-led, member-serving, world-receiving. We're a society that exists for those outside our own membership. The world receives the ministry of the gospel as executed and carried out by you and me, the church. And so invite them. John chapter 1, Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel. He's come to his conversion moment. He's following Jesus, and he goes to Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, come and see a man who told me everything about myself. And Nathaniel, too, came to faith in Christ and followed him. Come and see. Go to your friends. Go to your family members. Invite them to this place. Come and see what our church is about. Come and see this gospel. Come and see our Jesus. Invite them to join the live stream. Invite them to check out the services on demand. Come and see. But not everyone's going to come and see. There are some who are, who are out there who are never going to log in, never going to come to this building. And to them, you need to go and tell. And Philip, too, went. Acts chapter 8, he went to Samaria. He went to those villages that did not have the gospel, and he proclaimed the gospel in the villages of Samaria. 
Some people need us to go to them to witness for Christ. Come and see, go and tell. Be a witness for Jesus Christ. All right, that's the four W's. That's what it means at Harvest to be a disciple. And I want to say that there are easier churches to belong to. Right here in this town, in fact. And I won't cover up the fact that it may not be easy to be part of Harvest. And I I just need to say to you, just so I'm right up front with this, I'm not concerned at all uh, with masses of people attending here. I am concerned uh, about making disciples. That's actually what I stand before Jesus for, not the number of people that are here, but whether or not I actually made disciples. So I'm not really concerned at all with the numbers. And, um, And I want you to consider carefully whether or not Harvest is the church for you in light of everything that we've said here. This whole series is an aspiration. Us saying we are harvest is not at all a boast. It's us aspiring to be something. And so I'm going to give the final word here really to to Charles Spurgeon. He said this, aspire, this is our challenge, aspire to be something more than the mass of church members. Lift up your cry to God and beseech Him to fire you with a nobler ambition than that which possesses the common Christian, that you may be found faithful unto God at the last. It may win many crowns for your Lord and Master, Christ. And you and I will do that when we worship Christ, when we walk with Christ, when we work for Christ, and when we witness for Christ. Let me pray. Father, you have been uh, kind, kind to us in giving us so many examples and so much teaching that helps us to live out this Christian life. And so, God, I pray with the, the clarity that we've just heard here this morning, I pray that each of us would very sober-mindedly consider all that we've heard from your word, that your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts to to show us what changes need to happen. Father, I'm very grateful as a pastor that there are many, many people who serve here so faithfully. I pray for more to do that. I'm grateful, Father, that we have many here who are better disciples on the path to becoming even better and better. And I pray that each one here again whatever stage of the journey they're on would just take a few steps this week to become a better disciple of Jesus. So God, do this work in us. Do this work in our church. We aspire to these things. Father, we're reaching for them. I pray your Holy Spirit would do a deep work in each of our lives. I pray this in Christ's name.